Just about every Sunday for over 300 weeks, we've presented a prophecy update that ended with the words, Turns out we're in good company. Every chapter in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians ends with a reminder that the Lord is coming. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says at the end, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, chapter 2, verse 19, for what is our hope or our joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Uh, chapter 3, verse 13, establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul was a ready or not Jesus is coming guy as well. Prophecy is also practical as we'll find as we study this book. In each chapter, you'll see how the coming of the Lord profoundly impacts your walk with the Lord. Chapter 1, how the coming of the Lord affects your salvation. Chapter 2, how the coming of the Lord affects your service. And chapter 3, how the coming of the Lord affects your sanctification. Chapter 4, how the coming of the Lord affects your sorrow. And in chapter 5, how the coming of the Lord affects your stability. So let's plug in, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul invited Barnabas to go with him on a second missions trip to strengthen the churches that they had established on their first trip. Barnabas wanted to go, but he insisted they bring John Mark. John Mark had flaked out on them the first time. When things got rough, he went home. Paul refused and instead set out with Silvanus, usually called by his Roman name, Silas. By the way, here's a piece of Bible trivia. Luke always calls him Silas. Paul refers to him as Silvanus. They traveled through Syria and Cilicia, eventually coming to Derbe, then Lystra. In Lystra, they met Timothy. Paul wanted Timothy to join them, but he needed first to be circumcised so that he, being half Jewish, would not be offensive when they wanted to go in and preach at the local synagogue. After going through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, the Holy Spirit began closing doors until Paul found himself in the city of Troas. There he received the famous vision of the man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Dr. Luke was on this trip too. We're not sure when he joined them, but in Acts 16, he uses the word we, describing the group. At the river in Philippi, Lydia and her household hear the gospel. They receive the Lord and are baptized. It's interesting, the man from Macedonia turned out to be a woman in terms of the first converts there. In Philippi, a demon-possessed slave girl follows Paul and Silas around. After putting up with her for some time, Paul casts out the demon that gives her an ability to divine certain things. Her owners are not happy, seeing they made a great deal of money from her divination. They get Paul and Silas arrested, beaten, and chained in the prison. 
It's the prison where Paul and Silas are singing praises at midnight when God sends an earthquake opening the prison doors. Fearing the prisoners are escaping, the jailer is about to take his own life, Paul stops him. He ends up leading the jailer and his family to the Lord. And one thing that's not mentioned very often, somehow miraculously, because of the fear of the Lord, all the prisoners stay in their cells. Uh, That's the kind of commanding authority Paul had. Next day, Paul and Silas are released to profuse apologies from the authorities once Paul reveals he is a Roman citizen. After some days strengthening the believers in Philippi, Paul and Silas depart without Luke. Passing through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they come to Thessalonica. It's the capital of Macedonia with a population of 200,000, so it's a big city. Uh, It's not the most populous city of Macedonia. That is Philippi, but it is the capital. It's kind of like Teleri to Visalia. You know, exactly. That's... (laughs) Acts 17 records that Paul ministered in the synagogue there for three consecutive Sabbaths. Then he, Silas, and Timothy were forced by unbelieving Jews to leave Thessalonica for Berea. Paul was eventually driven out of Berea by the same unbelieving Jews, and he headed for Athens. It seems Timothy and Silas remained behind in Berea. While in Athens, Paul sent word to Timothy to return to Thessalonica and strengthen the believers there. Paul goes to Corinth, where eventually he catches up with Silas and Timothy. Timothy delivers a good report to Paul about the spiritual health of the church at Thessalonica, and Paul writes this first letter to them, maybe the first letter that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, sure, they were on a trip specifically to do Christian work, and there's nothing quite as much fun as that when you're on a short-term mission trip because you're just sharing with everybody. But don't lose sight that they were just ordinary Christians who shared their testimony as they were going through life. The only thing extraordinary about any of them was that God, the same God who saved you and can use you, was with them. That's the only thing extraordinary about any of these men. Uh, God was using them because they yielded themselves to him. And as they were going through life, uh, they found themselves sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul addressed his readers as the church of the Thessalonians. The word church, it's a Greek word, ekklesia. It comes to mean a called out people. It wasn't a Christian word. It was used of town assemblies when citizens were called together to conduct civil business. So, Uh, you could call a city council meeting the church. No one would because of our modern-day connotation, but it's simply a called-out group of people who are doing official business. The Jews adopted it to describe specifically religious assemblies, and it came to mean the assembled people of God. I don't need to belabor the understanding with you guys that the New Testament pattern was for folks to receive the Lord and then join together with other believers as his called out people. The New Testament knows nothing of a disconnected believer. Uh, Just the exhortation that we like the most is in Hebrews where Paul, who we believe is the writer, says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see the coming of the Lord. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it just 
necessary for Christians to understand that they're to be a part of a called out group. They may have been in Thessalonica, but they were also in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were now citizens of heaven looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. But this language also and perhaps mostly reminds us of the love and unity between father and son and it brings us into that unity as the called out people. We're called out of the world into the unity of the father and the son. We love God and we love one another because we are all in God the Father and God the Son. Grace to you and peace is a greeting that is uniquely Paul's. Grace is God's unmerited favor by which we are saved, but it's really quite a lot more than that. Grace is the power of God to sustain us in our walk with the Lord. I think we know that, but we sometimes forget that because in church we've heard so many times that grace is unmerited favor, and we relate it only to our salvation, our initial salvation, where we think, well, God had his unmerited favor upon us. We were saved by grace through faith, and that's true. But grace is that power of God that sustains us. It is our sufficiency. It is the understanding that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It is a, it is a powerful thing. Peace is your inner tranquility knowing you've been saved. It's a word that summarizes the reconciliation God accomplished with the human race on the cross. Many of you would have the testimony of coming to Christ later in life and having your heart flooded with peace, realizing that you were forgiven of sin, that you were saved for eternity, that the Lord Jesus Christ had done for you what you could have never done for yourself, and it brought you into a peace. In many cases, in fact, probably in all cases, your, your circumstances hadn't changed. Whatever drew you to Christ, if it was something negative or, or discouraging, it was still there facing you. Bad marriage, debts, um, whatever it might be. But you had a peace that now you were reconciled with God. And a great sense of tranquility came over you. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. God was to be thanked. He led Paul and his companions step by step, sustaining them through persecution by grace until they found themselves in Thessalonica sharing the gospel. Then by God's grace, human wills were freed to make decisions for Christ. Men and women were born again, saved from perishing, set on the path toward heaven. Think of the miracle of saved, changed lives, and you can't help but give thanks to God for his plan of salvation. It is that singular, most exciting thing in all of the world, really, to, to hear someone has gotten saved. It, it, it makes perfect sense that the angels in heaven rejoice at salvation of one soul, uh, and, and we ought to rejoice as well. Uh, there's, there's nothing quite like it, and it's very thankworthy. He says always here, and that's a big word considering it encompasses all the believers, and believers are all over the map in their maturity. The Thessalonians weren't themselves all worthy of thanks from one point of view. As we're going to see as we go through both of these letters, some of them opposed Paul 
and yet he gave thanks for all of them. Some of them were living immoral lives. Some were involved in false or erroneous teaching. No matter how many knuckleheads there were in Thessalonica, Paul and his companions could thank God for his saving work in each and every one of them, knowing it was just the beginning of conforming each person into the image of Jesus Christ. Of course, that person isn't, you know, exactly all that he or she is going to be one day when they awake in the likeness of Jesus Christ. But if the work has begun, if there's a confession of faith, if there's evidence of salvation, man, I'm thankful. And I'd rather have to struggle with that person. I mean, what's the alternative? That they're not saved? That that they're outside the body of Christ because there's so much trouble that you don't want to struggle with them? Uh, And so Paul says, "I'm, I'm thankful for all of them all of them that have begun this journey because the Lord is beginning to make himself real to them. The missionaries prayed together. That's obvious. They evidently thought that their prayers could make a difference. They weren't praying just to get themselves to accept the inevitable. I think sometimes, you know, we we just think, well, I have to pray until I accept the inevitable that God has for me. They were praying to influence the work of God, believing that the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous can accomplish something. We'll return to to that in a little while. Verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Our God and Father, excuse me. When Paul thought about the Thessalonians, which was often, he remembered three things about them as a congregation. He remembered their work of faith, and that means spiritual deeds they did inspired by their faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't random good deeds or acts of kindness. It is a specific work that God guides you into and fulfills in the power of his Holy Spirit. These are things that you could not have done before you were a Christian, or you would not have done before you were a Christian, Uh, and they are not the work of your flesh. They are specifically spiritual work uh, inspired by your faith in Jesus Christ. Their labor of love means toilsome, laborious effort to go on loving with the love of God when things aren't really going too smoothly. Because this word labor, it's a particularly strenuous word. It's a word that would be used of hard labor that causes you to sweat. The thought here is that apart from the presence of God's unconditional love in their lives, they would have given up long ago. Patience of hope is steadfast endurance inspired by true hope. The word for patience doesn't mean resignation where you just resign yourself to wait because there's nothing else to do. It too is a strong word that indicates an almost heroic endurance that faces trials with courage. You just won't back down because biblical hope is the certain knowledge that God will do exactly what he promised. He will perform his promises. One author wrote, faith rests on the past, love works in the present, hope looks to the future. Another said, faith comes first as the source of all Christian virtues. Love is the sustaining power which enables the believer to persevere in the face of opposition and suffering for the faith. 
And hope looks to the future, serving as the beacon star which guides the saint to his heavenly haven. Here's another. Faith looks back to a crucified Savior. Love looks up to a crowned Savior. Hope looks on to the coming Savior. That's my favorite. And I like that one because it focuses our hearts uniquely and squarely on our Lord Jesus Christ. And we always want to bring everything back to the Lord. In the sight of God, uh, excuse me, it says in the sight of our God and Father, that's maybe the most precious phrase in all of this salutation. Faith, love, and hope are all energized by the understanding that God is Father and he constantly is aware of the church corporately and of each member of the church individually. My life is being played out before him. In his sovereignty, he guides, he directs, he limits, he permits, he allows. I can't always get a handle on exactly why things happen as they do, but I can trust they are always in his sight and that he loves me as a father does his son. Those two things are bedrock. I am in the sight of my God and Father. There are certain moments, even in the Bible, that bring out this point that we don't totally understand. Early in the history of the Jerusalem church, James is arrested and beheaded. A little later, Peter is arrested and is scheduled to be beheaded. Instead, an angel breaks him out of jail. Why? Why permit James to be beheaded? and then limit the power of the authorities by miraculously freeing Peter. Some suggest that there was more fervent prayer for Peter. There was a prayer meeting going on, but the text doesn't say that was the reason that God released Peter and not James. It only establishes that the believers thought prayer could, in fact, influence the situation, and it did even though when Peter showed up at the prayer meeting, they didn't at first believe that he had been set free. It's a great, it's a great passage of Scripture. Peter's asleep. He doesn't realize he's being uh, busted out of prison. The angel has to you know, kind of motivate him. And then he gets to where they're praying, and they don't believe it's him. They think it's some kind of apparition until he finally gets in there. Uh, But the Bible doesn't say it's because they prayed the second time and not the first time. It just reveals that they were praying. The truth is we cannot answer these questions of why, not this side of eternity. But we need not despair if we know that all that we do is in the sight of our God and Father. Let's think about how we began our study tonight. Paul was in God's sight when he had the dispute with Barnabas. Paul was in, uh, he was in God's sight when he and Silas were in the Philippian jail. He was in God's sight when they were run out of Thessalonica. He was in God's sight when he was run out of Berea. He was also in God's sight when he cast out a demon and when he led many to Jesus Christ. Paul had this understanding that that he was in God's sight and that God was his father. And we sometimes we get a an encapsulated view of things in the Bible to, you know, so you see the Philippian situation. So he goes to Philippi, preaches the gospel, gets thrown into jail, 
earthquake, jail cell doors open, goes over to the jailer's house after he keeps the guy from killing himself. His whole household gets saved. They all go back to prison. Paul gets the authorities uh, quivering because they beat up a Roman citizen, gives the church favor in Philippi, and then he moves on. And you think, now I know why God had him in prison. Because there wouldn't have been an earthquake. There wouldn't have been the salvation of the jailer. That's fantastic. Here's our problem. Those things don't always follow as quickly in our lives. We'd be full of faith and excitement if everything happened just like that. But we get up day after day sometimes and think, okay, this trial is still going. I don't see any reason. No one's gotten saved because I lost my house or I lost my job or I, I don't see anything really happening because we have really short sight. God gives us these examples to say, this is the kind of thing I'm about. I'm about letting my child be arrested and beaten if necessary and held in the stocks at night so that they will sing praises and others will get saved. But I, I don't always do it overnight. It's not going to be tomorrow. And there's biblical examples of that as well, but we get frustrated, and that's why we need the faith and the love and the hope, is it not? Indeed, the Bible lets us know even that precious in the sight of the Lord is what? The death of his saints. Every moment of every day, you are in the sight of God. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Live with that as your philosophy and you'll flourish in his sight rather than ask why you'll just be courageous in your endurance, in your patience of hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.